0: Hello, everyone. It's February 28th, 2023. Starship is in the news again. It always is. But there's some cool things we want to discuss, like maybe using Starship as a fuel depot, not just for other starships, but for anyone who needs a refill and has the inclination to swing on by. While the show's all fueled up, let's do it and lift off. the tower welcome to episode 398 of the orbital mechanics podcast i'm david i'm ben and i'm dennis so
1: can we talk about uh video games it's
2: definitely big news in uh space flight video games for sure yeah is it about <laughs> kerbal
1: yeah ksp2 was not released today the the open beta was released this week
2: i i i, I haven't gotten it yet and i don't have plans to get it until uh I think I have enough time to commit to the giant black hole Bingo. of productive of productivity yes. that that game is going to be.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, that's exactly my case. Um, although mine is a little more hypocritical because um, <laughs> uh, early this week, maybe on Monday, I was having kind of a crappy day and I, I wasn't being productive, Um and I was like, I, I just need a, a video game. Let me, let me go find like a, uh, a, a low stress video game I can play. And that was as an alternative to, uh, Jedi fallen order, which I'm almost done with. Uh, and it's a very, very, very good game. If you're on the fence about buying it, just go buy it. It's so good. There are some glitches, um, but the story is really entertaining and it, it it feels really good. Like I think I went on about it on a recent show whether or not it made it into the edit. <laughs> um but uh I was like, oh, you know what? I have always wanted to play um Return of the Oberdin, um, made by the same dev who made Papers Please, because like I played the pre release like demo of it just just trying to show off the, the graphic style. And I was like, I can't wait till this comes out. And then I just never had the desire, the memory, or the money all at the same time. And I was like, great, let, let me, this is, this is my time. Let me go get it. And it was on sale on Steam this week. So I, I am of the opinion that I was supposed to buy it this week. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, Return of the Oberdin. Have you guys played this game? Have you heard of this game? I haven't heard of this. Okay, have you heard of Papers, Please?
2: Yes, this is the one where you're basically trying to get into like a former Soviet nation or something, and you got to try to sneak your way through. Or are you the uh, security people trying to stop people you, from sneaking through? Yeah,
1: you are at the customs checkpoint. You are the office, the che- the customs officer. That game is very, very good, and it's got like all of this. Very good story behind relatively simple or deceptively simple game mechanics. Um, and Return of the Oberden is very similar. Uh, without spoiling it, um, you play as, uh, an insurance adjuster who has been tasked with uh, adjusting the claim made on an East India trading company ship that has shown up at port uh, with nobody on it. And so it's, it's a mystery. You basically have to figure out what happened on this ship. Um, and it, oh, there are so many things that I could say about it that would be minor spoilers or even major spoilers. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's so good. And that the graphic style is unbelievable. It is not a 16 bit graphic game. It, it is a one bit color graphic system each pixel is either on or it's off. And so all of the shades of gray are represented by dithering. Um, and it, it looks incredible. Um, and the low fidelity really makes it feel more immersive and realistic. This style of graphics is intentionally like retro. And in the settings, you can pick which uh, monitor color to use. So, it, like, it feels very familiar, but the fact is that it is representing 3D rendered graphics, which would not have been available in the time that this is pretending to be, like the, the computer age that this is pretending to be. And so, it feels immersive in such an amazing way. Um, but, like, to solve papers, please, I wound up taking a bunch of... Or to, to finish papers, please. I wound up taking a bunch of screen caps of some of the reference material and just like having these screen caps scattered around my desktop. Uh, mm-hmm. because, um, flip, me- memorizing the things was not a possibility for me. I had to reference them every time. Um, and so similarly playing, uh, Oberdin, I've had the, make prodigious use of of screenshots and you know taking notes and things. I I, it could all be handwritten, like I don't have to actually take screenshots, it's just faster. But it's like it's so good.
0: Starship's near future. So we're gonna talk a little bit more about Starship, I know we talked about it last week or was it maybe the week before last? It was last week? I don't remember, but it was one of the last two episodes. We talked about the static fire, and uh, yeah. and we're kind of debating whether or not it would be required to do another one. I mean, they could have gone either way, but as it turns out, they're not going to do another static fire. So Probably. Um, but we have some more information, some more updates, which I think is really cool.
1: We actually got some fun confirmations about other um, statistics that we were talking about. Um, on Twitter, Musk confirmed that this was about 50% throttle, and then went on to say that the the first launch attempt will actually be ninety percent throttle, um, not a hundred, because it's a test launch and these are deep throttling engines, so they can <laughs> they can do that, right? Like most engines can get down to ninety, but like that's still far from the bottom for uh, for Raptor, which is kind of crazy. So if you do the math, that works out to this static fire being roughly thirty-five meganewtons of force. We had mentioned that this might have broken the thrust. Record, um, just given how many engines there are and how powerful those engines are. But it didn't. It did, uh, best Saturn V, which puts out 34.5 meganewtons of thrust, but it is still less than SLS, which puts out 39 meganewtons. By the way, N1 uh, was capable of doing 45 meganewtons, but it's unclear if they ever did. Uh, a test that, that had all the engines running at full thrust. Um, so the, the 90% throttle test launch, um, is gonna produce about 67 meganewtons, uh, of thrust, which will definitely, uh, swamp the record. Uh, so that's pretty cool. Going back to what David said, yeah, they're, they're probably not doing a second fire. Um, they said that, um, this, Static test they did was basically the last box to check. Uh, and that at this point, they've, quote, pretty much, they filled, quote, pretty much all of the prerequisites, uh, in order to do their orbital attempt. So they're, they're looking to do their orbital test in the next month or so. Uh, hopefully, uh, March sometime is, is gonna see it. I think at this point, it really comes down to, uh, FAA. But, They they may well do another static fire, but at this point it really doesn't look like it. NASA Spaceflight has got an article that we'll link to, and they kind of sum up the activity that's been happening there over the last couple of weeks. It's pretty cool. Uh, They conducted their 31-engine static fire. They did a single-engine spin prime test and multiple booster quick disconnect tests. So the spin prime test was... Almost certainly done on one of the two engines that they had issues with, right? My guess would be the one that they had shut down on its own, rather than that they disabled ahead of time.
2: Wasn't it an earlier spin prime test that had the kaboom or the fire that happened? I believe you're correct.
1: That oh. sounds right. Yeah. NSF notes that the Raptor work platform was moved back out uh, to the to the launch pad. So there's a possibility they're going to replace one or both of those engines. Maybe they just want to get a closer look at it. Maybe they are still working through data, and this is like, just in case we decide to pull it out, we're going to get this moved over so we can do it quickly. Um, but that's an interesting thing to to keep an eye on. Other than re- you know any potential engine replacements, uh, aside from another potential static fire, it looks like the next big thing we're going to see uh, is, uh, ship 24 rolling out to the launch site? Uh, that'll be pretty cool. So the question still remains, who's the customer for, uh, for Starship? It is so big. We, like, we'd never even considered a commercial launch vehicle this big. Well, I guess, I guess that's probably. A bridge too far. We've definitely considered it. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. it's never been this this close to actually flying, or uh, I dare say, had this much money dumped into it. So uh, we'll also link to a space news article. Um, and space news is kind of speculating about their probably their big primary customer, other than the Artemis missions, uh, and of course that's the U.S. military, Gary Hangry, which. Boy, that's a name I, I resonate with. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's probably hungry, uh, or something, but, uh, Gary is the senior advisor for national security space solutions at SpaceX. And, um, he said that it, he was at the space mobility conference last month, I think, and said that Artemis and Starlink, uh, will, Kind of prove to the U.S. military that Starship is a a good choice, and the way he put it was, he said, "It'll help them understand how to use Starship." Uh, so, so we'll see. Um, I think Starlink, more than Artemis, I think Starlink is really going to be the demonstrator here. Like, hey, look, we we actually can deploy this many vehicles all at once, like this much mass, mm-hmm. this much volume, not a problem. We can do it. With that said, though, the Uh, traditional ways of using rockets are not the only ways that the military is considering using Starlink or uh, uh, Starship. There is a perspective study uh, looking at using Starship for point to point cargo delivery. I think we've talked about this a couple of times Mm. uh, from, you know, different angles and different likelihoods. I think the likelihood is still uh, quite low for any time in the near future. I think it's going to be a long time. Before, that's a reasonable possibility. But the military is kind of looking into, hey, if we can't get, you know, an airplane across the world fast enough, does it make sense to use a rocket instead? And they don't even necessarily need to land a starship at the place where they're delivering cargo. They could potentially do an airdrop, which I think is wacky. uh airdropping something from a spacecraft is a little mind-boggling.
2: The best idea since they wanted to use the early rockets for mail delivery, right? Yeah,
1: exactly. Why not? (laughs) And then uh, SpaceX, they they understand that they have a lot of mass capability here. And so one of the best things to do with that is to fly more mass. Um, And so the idea of a fuel depot, is not a new one and even using starship specifically as a fuel depot is not a new one but they i think are trying to pitch the idea of a fuel depot to the u.s military and say hey you want a uh, better space uh space domain awareness cool you need to have vehicles that can fly around from one orbit to another to do that you need a lot of fuel and we can get you that fuel on orbit and you can go zipping around and visiting other spaceship and doing all sorts of crazy things. Like the concept of refueling satellites is a good one. And it's one that has already been proven out. And like, this is something that will happen un- unless, you know, humanity is wiped out before we can get to it. it. It seems hard to imagine a way that, that, that that's not going to happen. Um, but what I think is even more interesting is that SpaceX says that they either want to or plan to put a Starship up in low Earth orbit as a fuel depot specifically for vehicles going to and returning from lunar orbit. So they're saying, hey, we want to support reusable, presumably commercial spacecraft going to and from the moon. And we can we can put a fuel depot up there. You know, I'm sure that the variable message sign that they put out front is going to have a very large number on it uh, okay. stating the cost for fuel, but it's going to be less than flying your own fuel. <laughs> and I think it'd be really cool to see uh starship, uh, as a fuel depot, you know, you send one up, you say, okay, well, this thing is manifested to deliver this many gallons of fuel to this many vehicles. And so we got to fly another one in this many months, and then we'll bring that one down and, oh, well, we need one in this inclination. So let's put one up, uh, you know, one in an orbit that doesn't point at the moon i I think that's a good futuristic like feel good kind of idea right there so
0: yeah i mean that's a cool i uh, hadn't thought of that particular use case i mean we've have heard about it being used as a fuel depot Mm -hmm. but just for other starships right
2: yeah yeah
0: right but this just you know for low earth orbit that's kind of a cool idea actually and i guess i i mean i guess the viability depends on How long can a starship remain in like low Earth orbit, let's say, you know, because the fuel and also how much fuel does it carry and how long would it take to expend that? You know, like I'm just wondering about the logistics and the orbital lifetime of a starship, like how long would it have to or most likely remain in orbit before it's, you know, exhausted all of its fuel and has to come back.
1: You you mean just because it's, because it's cryogenic fuel
0: that too. I mean, it's cryogenic it's, and it's finite. So eventually, I mean, if it's a fuel depot, what happens once it runs out, it comes home, comes home, you save save a little bit, you know, maybe,
2: uh, you know, a few percent to deorbit. Although I guess it'd have to be more than just a few because you want to land it too.
0: Yeah,
1: but it doesn't take that much to deorbit and land. It really doesn't. Like, if you look at how much um, landing a Falcon 9 first stage, uh, how much that reduces the payload, it's it's not that much. Uh, there aren't that many payloads that are flying on Falcon 9 that need a full tank of fuel anyway. And then for Starship, like, honestly, its fuel requirements may be similar uh, to landing a first stage it's coming in from a higher altitude it's going to be moving faster when it stopped slowing down uh just due to to drag like to when when you have to light up those engines it's going to be moving faster but it's not going to be moving like incredibly fast like it's not moving at orbit you're not having to slow it down from orbital velocity
2: yeah you don't need to reserve half the fuel for
1: landing and you don't need to you also don't need to like do the the you don't need to flip and go backwards, right? Like I I don't, yeah, I really don't think it's anywhere near half of the tank needs to be
0: held in reserve.
1: I
2: don't don't know what that number is. If it's closer to 10% or 20% or 5%. Yeah.
0: It's it's probably not that much. I
2: would think.
1: Well, and especially if you consider making a tanker version that is almost all tank or maybe all tank, like that could be up a, you know, a lot of fuel
0: right there. Yeah, well, that's kind of what I was thinking that they would do, right? Because that was the idea, like, all along, as far as refueling in orbit to get to the moon or to Mars or whatever. But, I mean, I I guess what I'm just wondering is, like, on average, how long would a starship need to remain in orbit before, you know, it needs to come back? I mean, like, are we talking about months or years? Like, can it stay up there for, like, a whole decade and just, like, slowly topping up?
1: I don't know, man. I I got a feeling it's months. I don't don't think it's years, just because it's cryogenic fuel. Now, if you were gonna fly like a, a separate fuel source you know maybe like a, a mono proper or um just lh2 yeah y- y- that's probably fine and it, the boil off that you experience is okay like you know as long as you come back home when you're done but yeah i don't know i feel like that's the limiting factor is going to be the boil off like we're pretty good at dealing with cryogenics uh, in space for a long time, but, like, not that good. Like, it's still on the order of months, right?
0: Yeah. I don't know. some interesting questions about how to be a fuel depot <laughs> right, in Earth orbit.
2: Which I think is worth, worth pointing out because there's some good discussion in the chat with uh, uh, Death Kid and Sam uh, in particular talking about the status of fueling, is that we have done in-orbit refueling before. Or, or transfers of fuel, but it's not been cryogenic. And it was what, last year or so that they had that whole slew of like a dozen or so contracts and maybe like a fifth of them, or not a fifth of them, like maybe five or six of them were related to cryogenic in orbit, you know, fuel transfer and storage and all that good stuff.
1: And, and, you know, if you're going to the to the moon and back, like it's probably going to be cryogenics um, that Form a a stable, like uh, sustainable—I don't know—space culture. (laughs) Um, But in the near term, I mean, they could they could fly a big old tank of monoprop. Like we know how to transfer that. Like that's easy. Easy, I say in quotes. (laughs) But like. You know, the, the, you could worry about your cryogenics boiling off, but you're not your, you know, your deliverable boiling off. Um, Chris in the chat asks if, uh, the lunar starship, so like the Artemis starship, uh, is still required to refuel in orbit before it heads out to the moon. And I, I believe that's correct, but I, I don't think that that really is impacting the amount or the, the utility of a tanker in low orbit because, uh, a tanker configuration is presumably what they're talking about doing um and that's that's all fuel tank there's no cargo space which you know limits how much fuel uh, a lunar starship can can carry but i mean it's it's a good it, it um a good perspective to step over and look at this question from
0: All right, so this week, let's just do two short and sweets. Dennis, what's the first? NASA planning for first Gateway
2: Logistics mission. Three years after awarding SpaceX the first contract for cargo missions to Lunar Gateway Space Station, NASA has announced that the agency will start work later this year on the first logistics mission. While little public progress has been made since the award, that was done purposefully since other aspects of the Artemis program are more challenging and required more resources and effort. The first Artemis mission to use Gateway will be Artemis 4, currently scheduled for 2027, a timeline NASA is confident SpaceX could easily meet, even with its new Dragon XL spacecraft, which would carry cargo to the station.
0: And then next up, CubeSat successfully deploys expandable antenna on orbit. Satellite communications company beetlesat had launched its 6U CubeSat earlier this year on SpaceX's Transporter 6 mission, which delivered the 9-kilogram spacecraft with a deployable antenna to SSO. While the antenna had previously been tested within the ISS by the Axiom-1 crew, the company, formerly NSLCOM, announced the successful deployment of the 60-centimeter antenna on this latest mission. This is the first antenna deployment of this kind for a Cube Set, the type of innovative tech the beetle set hopes will set it apart from competitors as it aims to build up a constellation with deployable antennas okay so let's move on to this week in spaceflight history we have four winners uh, correct guess from Hydrac, and then three other guesses which get full credit or full bonus points uh, from Uncle Willie, Cy Kyle, and the Greek. And the clue was, everyone get off the phone. I need to log into space. Very good mm. clue. Basically, this is in 1995, and you hear that clue, you have an idea of what we're talking about. But yeah, the event is on March 2nd, 1995, and that's the launch of STS-67, which was the launch of Endeavor. And I get, I'll get to the clue a little bit later because that kind of comes further down. Uh, so it's coming in time. You just have to wait. <laughs> this was a 16-day mission commanded by Stephen Oswald. Um, and mostly, uh, the big deal with this mission was actually the Astro 2 mission, or that was the, the most noteworthy event that happened during the shuttle mission. So there's a bunch of other things, obviously. like I even read, uh, you know, there's always crystal growth, but that's not... I mean, <laughs> no one ever talks about that. There was a couple other things. I mean, well, there's probably more than a couple other things, but I just kind of wanted to focus on Astro 2. So this was a space lab mission. There was one other space lab mission, I think, prior to this this, which which was actually Astro 1, uh, unsurprisingly. What Astro is, it's basically three, although previously four scientific instruments, and uh, this whole mission is to get a good idea of what's happening in the cosmos with respect to ultraviolet, because taking like any observations from Earth, you don't see much in the ultraviolet, which I kind of knew, but I I never considered how big of a deal that was, uh, because most of the ultraviolet is filtered out by the Earth's atmosphere, uh, depending on the wavelength, Uh, but certainly things in the far ultraviolet or the, what's it called, not the super ultraviolet, the... uh,
2: I mean, ultraviolet there's yeah i was going to say there's uh, <laughs> Super maybe ulti. extreme uv
0: Yeah, I think the word is extreme. I think it's extreme ultraviolet. The far and the extreme, which kind of like borders on x-rays, that's all filtered out by the atmosphere, uh, specifically because basically the ultraviolet rays will ionize with the atmosphere, and then once that happens, you're not going to get anything from the ground. So you have to go into space in order to make these observations. Like if you want to look at anything in the ultraviolet, you have to do it from orbit. Specifically, the 100 to 280 nanometer range is actually absorbed completely by the atmosphere. I, I would imagine if you go further beyond that or further down, like in the 90. Um, I don't know where UV uh, stops being UV and starts being x-rays, but it's somewhere around 80, I think. Further than that, I don't remember.
2: I think actually a lot of it is uh, ozone, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Or, or rather, you know, oxygen in the atmosphere being broken up into ozone. That's one of the ways ozone forms.
1: Yeah, Wikipedia says that um, vacuum ultraviolet is the name for the UV that mostly gets soaked up by the atmosphere. I think is is what that says and so it's saying uh, 100 to 200 is strongly absorbed uh 150 to 200 can propagate through nitrogen um but still get soaked up by the oxygen and then extreme ultraviolet is the smallest wavelengths down to 10 nanometers but then what what we talk about is A B and C is like 350 300 to 400 and then 280 to 3 to 300 and then 100 to 280 is ABC.
0: See, I never heard that designation but the, yeah so that's how you break it up
1: a b c is is what people talk about for like atmos like ultraviolet coming from the sun um and like what is blocked by sunscreen and what isn't but but just just to point out uvc is like the smallest wavelength in the abc categories and that only goes down to a hundred um and UV goes all the way down to ten nanometers. Ten, yeah, it is the extreme. So
0: yeah. So what were they going to observe once they were in orbit? Pretty much everything. Uh, <laughs> like <laughs> it kind of depended on uh, the specific instrument, but not too much. So really, they were pointing these things at everything. So you basically had galaxies, um, and then also getting ultraviolet measurements of the interstellar medium, globular clusters, nebula, supernova remnants, planets, the moon. I think the Earth as well. I didn't put that on. On the list, but um, pretty much like anything that they could point them at, they wanted to take those measurements um, because this was, I guess, the second time that they had ever gotten this kind of data this comprehensively. uh, The first being Astro One. So once in orbit, the observations were slightly delayed due to a leaky RCS thruster, which was the R4 rear for right thruster, which was on the starboard OMS pod. Uh, So we had to work out. We were talking prior to recording exactly which thruster it was. But yeah, so this I believe would be, yeah, so on the right side, the furthest forward, if you look at the four little dots that are, you know, each of those thrusters, I believe that's the one that we're referencing here. I think that's the R4R. So that one was a little bit leaky. The telescopes uh, had to keep their protective doors closed, um, and that was in order to avoid contamination. Uh, The flight controllers worked with the ground crew to actually close off a manifold for the oxidizer and the fuel. Once the manifold was closed, uh, they had to, you know, let the remaining fuel and oxidizer kind of just bleed out. And they did that. Uh, they opened them back up. Then they had to close them a second time to allow some more of the residual propellant to dissipate. It's kind of interesting just how contaminative, if if that's a word, this stuff is. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you think about that particular leaky thruster, how much contamination could it really cause? I don't know. Um, I don't know how it dissipates in space when you're in orbit and you're not moving really, I mean, like, obviously, you're in orbit, but uh, it's not making any maneuvers. Um, I wouldn't think that it would be that big of a deal, but I guess it really could still cause some pretty serious contamination problems.
2: Maybe the fact that they're the mission's primary focus was observing with sensitive instruments is why yeah. maybe they were a little more sensitive to this kind of environment, or having a contaminated propellant in your
0: environment. Yeah, but I was just wondering, like, how does a leaky thruster venting out the rear, although the telescopes are towards the rear of the payload bay, but it kind of shoots out to the side, I guess. But, you know, I guess if it's just leaking, it could go in any which direction. Yeah, I don't know. I, mean, I don't have kinda, a good sense it of what happens. It kind of expands
1: out spherically. I was thinking like yeah.
2: cloud, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a, if it's a slow leak.
1: Okay, so does it act like a particle or a wave? If it's behaving like a wave, like, yeah, it could totally propagate around corners.
0: Yeah, that's the thing that I don't, I can't intuitively
1: say. I'm making a joke about wave-particle duality and light. (laughs) Well,
0: right, I get that. But I mean, literally, I don't know what... Yeah, no, no, I think in
1: in reality, it does propagate around corners because it basically expands out in a sphere. And so even if it encounters something, it'll deposit on the leading edge of that thing, but it also wrap around... Um, because
0: the, it would have to be a lower pressure gradient. that would The particles,
1: exactly right. The particles are bouncing against each other. There is pressure, even though it's, Mm -hmm. you know, we call it vacuum and it's, you know, expanding outward in a sim, almost exactly the same way it would in a true vacuum. It's still, there's still going to be particle collisions as it's happening.
2: There's still oxygen and other stuff up there.
1: Honestly, at that point, nobody really cares about I, I don't think that the, the atmosphere makes that much of a difference I think just the propellant itself like it almost self-pressurizes right <laughs> like the density of propellant particles is probably a lot higher than atmospheric particles depending on how close you are and I I, I think anywhere on the shuttle that's going to be true I don't know. I I could totally be wrong, but I'm I'm guessing.
0: Well, I suppose that the very thin atmosphere might actually carry some of that a little bit. You know, De- I mean, there is yeah. definitely some atmosphere up there that it's
1: definitely a contributing factor. With. It's it's one of those tricky questions where like we know that a couple of things are true, but it's hard to judge which one is going to be uh, affecting like most dominant. Yeah,
2: and, and Chevy in the chat pointing out that it also uh, could be the uh, uh, the Kwanda effect which is basically a fluid wanting to attach to a surface.
1: Yeah, it's like laminar flow that you get along a surface. And like that's why you have like turbulence inducing fins or bumps or something is to get the to get that layer off and to get some turbulence up against the skin of a thing so that when You know, at at the trailing edge of that thing, you can get that separation without kind of the suction from drag of the laminar flow just holding on to you. Okay. But yeah, Colin says, I think quantum effect might be limited in atmosphere. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I don't, I don't know if, if you have a certain amount of density that you need before that actually becomes a thing an interesting idea.
0: Anyway, so what were these three telescopes? Uh, The first one was the HUT or uh, the Hopkins Ultraviolet Telescope. This was a 90-centimeter main mirror telescope, and it had a spectroscopic range of 82.5 through 185 nanometers. So... Yeah, that sits pretty well within the UV range there. Um, It was modified to observe in the far UV only. uh, The Astro-1 version, which, you know, because this had previously flown back on that one, which is I think in 1990. I don't remember quite when that was. It was a previous shuttle mission. But that one observed in the extreme UV as well. So probably, yeah, down to like 10. But doing this allowed for 2.3 times better sensitivity in the far UV range. So that's one telescope. The second one was uh, the... UIT, which was the ultraviolet imaging telescope. Uh, This one was designed for wide-field ultraviolet images um, and that is in the 120 through 320 range in nanometers and that one is equipped with both a near-UV and a far-UV detector. However, the near-UV camera failed during launch. I couldn't figure out why, but something happened during launch. The camera didn't work, so they just weren't able to make any observations in the near-UV with that particular instrument. So that was unfortunate, but uh, that was like the only real hiccup as far as this whole mission goes i would say the third telescope was the i don't know how to say this Whoopie. that's just how i want to say it yeah. the w-u-p-p-e the whoop which is the wisconsin ultraviolet Polarimeter experiment um and that one operates in the 140 through 330 nanometer range but yeah these three telescopes um so you have them mounted on a space shuttle in the payload bay, right? And you're trying to make these uh, very precise observations. And how do you do that? I don't know how often we've talked about telescopes on space shuttles before. I can never remember. We did cover, I believe, the previous shuttle mission that carried the Astro-1. I don't know if much detail was gone into about that, though. I think we maybe, um, whoever did that one covered some other aspects of the flight. I can't remember. I think because that one had the abort to orbit. I believe that was the first... In only time they had to do an abort orbit 51F 51F yes yeah that's the one I believe that was the one that uh, the Astro One mission flew on so I think most of the twist of was about that (laughs) Um, (laughs) not too much about the Astro One mission itself but basically when you have a telescope on a space shuttle right that can be a bit of a problem because uh, you don't want a whole lot of movement
1: I think I think when you mean when you have humans on a telescope not when you have a telescope on a shuttle (laughs) right like isn't it the humans that are the issue and all the life support Right. Well,
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. The life support and other things that are happening on the shuttle. It's not a super sensitive instrument. It's a space shuttle. So it's you right. know, bound to, I mean, who knows what's going on. It's, you know, mechanical processes and fuel moving from here and there, like whatever. Yeah. It's just
1: the, these darn humans, they, they need so much maintenance and just vibrates yeah. the heck out of
0: our science. Keeping them alive is a real hassle. But uh, so, yeah, uh, these were all mounted on a very interesting instrument called the IPS, which was the instrument pointing system. So this was basically how you could point, and then actually there was some instrumentation built into the telescopes themselves, which I didn't write about, but were able to take out a little bit more of that vibration that was caused by the shuttle. But basically, that's what this system did. It was able to point and then cancel out any kind of movement. The shuttle itself, however, was used along with the IPS to actually point the telescope. So basically, you had to maneuver the space shuttle to some degree in order to get the telescopes pointing in the right direction because it didn't have a full range of motion. Uh, So yeah, you did use the shuttle. Um, but then, once you got kind of like a gross pretty much like vaguely in the right direction, I suppose uh-huh. you could say um that's when you know you had to use the i p s the shuttle could maintain about zero point one degrees pointing accuracy um and that was at best most of the time it was more like two degrees two
1: degrees what what was the difference did do they have like a high precision and low precision, or was that like depending on the space regime?
0: It seems that just like zero point one was probably more like the ideal, but in reality it's more like two degrees yeah.
1: I didn't realize it was that bad. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, it kind of makes sense. No, it totally makes sense. I agree.
0: Yeah, like how well, how finely can you use a shuttle's RCS thrusters to point and maintain a particular orientation, you know? If, like, you, if you didn't design it to do that, right. But uh, yeah, so that's what the IPS was for and that allowed for faster response um, and greater accuracy. Um, and that was up to 1.2 arc seconds on the target. So obviously that's way better. Uh, 0.1 degrees compared to 1.2 arc seconds. I don't, that's like what, one one thousandths or more than that i think well there's, what, there's uh 3600
2: arc seconds in a de- in a yeah. degree yeah so orders of
0: magnitude. But yeah, the IPS, which did fly on the previous mission on Astro 1, and it flew on Space Lab 2, which was in 1985, um, they actually had to make some improvements. So the big improvement was to the guide star tracking. So on the first mission, the guide stars were not ranked. So basically it was trying to track like any particular guide star that it got a lock on. And apparently some guide stars are better than other ones. Um, and so the big change that they made was they actually ranked them and they told the software, hey, focus on this one if you get a lock on it, because this one is more Reliable. And really, this did make a big difference. I didn't put all the numbers of how many more observations were made, but if you compare the Astro Two mission to the first one, uh, it's like at least I would say about like three times more observations, and I think that that is largely down to. The better tracking, uh, because like the tracking was like a big hassle during that first mission. So, for example, the HUT, um, that telescope made 385 observations, which is three times more than on the previous mission, which uh, which is a big improvement. And one thing that the IPS could not necessarily compensate for entirely was the crew exercises. So, I kind of wanted to point that out. That basically, like you were saying, you have crew on board and they're making all these movements, and uh, it was found out that while trying to take these observations, you couldn't be on the exercise bike, um, and probably not making any. Other Big movements, either, but that was a problem, so they were asked to actually reschedule that, so they had to do it before they hit orbital night because that's when you know they were taking the observations and then there were two of uh the getaway specials, which uh we, you know we mentioned I think like every time we do a shuttle mission hmm. uh these also were for making some observations in the UV. So there were two canisters. They were sponsored by the Australian Space Office. The first canister housed a telescope, uh, which was for making ultraviolet observations of deep space and nearby galaxies. The second one, which it was connected to by wires, um, that one housed uh, the batteries, the video recorder, and the data storage. Uh, so anyway, getting to the clue why the internet reference. So this was the first shuttle mission that was uh, that was logged onto the internet, which is not really true. Pretty much what it was was actually the Astro 2 homepage. And at this time, this is you know, like 1995, 200,000 computers from 59 different countries visited the homepage, which I think is astounding. I don't know if that would happen today, even though there's more people online. I feel like the internet is such a larger it's – it's vastly larger than it was back then. So would that many people want to visit? The homepage of this particular experiment during a shuttle mission, um, but I think back then it was just such a novel thing that that's why they uh, got that kind of traffic.
1: Yeah. What what kind of content did they have on it?
0: I don't know. I, I the Astro Two homepage now. Uh, I don't think it's up. <laughs> I don't think it's up anymore. Um, but the I think it primarily served as a forum for asking questions because there was a lot of questions asked. Um, there was actually hundreds of thousands, according to one source. So a lot of people had a lot of questions. For the astronauts, and basically this was all done on the ground, and then the questions were faxed it, and to use that word faxed up to uh, hmm. the shuttle. Yep. I don't know fax what machine. that means. Faxed? Nope. They, Did had they a fax use a fax machine, machine back yep. then. Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: <laughs> We've talked about it in the past. It it like jammed, and it, it, like they had a teletype machine that would jam. Right. All right. Like yeah.
0: Well, I remember the teletype. So is is that the same thing? Is it the teletype? Uh, no, I believe
1: I, I could be wrong, but I believe that the fax machine was. Uh, added after the teletype machine. I believe it was using something much closer to the fax protocol than the teletype machine was.
0: So anyway, that's where the clue comes from. Uh, All the people logging onto the Astro 2 homepage, asking questions and even getting some of them answered. But one other experiment that I wanted to mention was uh, the mid-deck active control experiment. Uh, This experiment was to test a closed-loop control system uh, to better compensate for motion disturbances that might happen on any spacecraft. This was a five-foot-long free-floating flexible beam. That's a lot of Fs. With experiments at either end and one end creates a disturbance and the other end will measure that rate of disturbance with rate gyros and reaction wheels. And then one notable event that I just wanted to also point out, um, I thought this was kind of cool, was that uh, during the, I believe, the 14th day of the shuttle mission, um, Commander Steve Oswald, who was the commander of that shuttle mission, uh, spoke to a U.S. astronaut Norm Thaggard, and he was aboard Mir. This was the first American aboard Mir, and I thought that was kind of a cool precedent there. There were two other shuttle Mir missions, I believe, but there was no American who was staying aboard Mir. I think the first one was just a dock. The second one-
2: Oh, the first one was just getting close to it and not actually docking. And then, yeah, the second one was docking. So I think- so I okay. think that's –
0: yeah, I think he got it. Pretty cool. When Thaggard had launched on his Soyuz with two other crewmates, uh, the two other Russians, that was on March 14th. And it set a new record for the most people in space. So that was a total of 13 people at that point. So in that lasted, what, for about two more days before the shuttle came back. So for about two days, there were 13 people on orbit um, or maybe less than that. I'm not sure how long the changeover – was it took place on Mir, but probably longer than a couple of days, I think. Uh, there were three people on Soyuz, three people on Mir, and then there were seven who were on the shuttle. So uh, oh. that's a cool little record. But other than that, I guess that's where I'll, I'll leave it so we can totally come back to this mission <laughs> for future Twists. If you want to look at something else, there's a whole bunch of stuff that I left out. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that is uh, this week in spaceflight history, uh, STS-67.
2: Very cool. You know I love shuttle
1: Twists. Yeah, this, is, this was a very Dennis uh episode or uh (laughs) subject selection uh great david thank you um we don't get enough shuttle twists. i feel like like as many twists as we do that are shuttle there aren't enough of them well next week is going to be the 7th to the 13th of march uh dennis it's your turn do you have a clue for us
2: i do next week in 2008 20 million leagues above the sea level (laughs)
1: <laughs> all right so if you have a guess as to what this clue is uh send us your guess you can email us you can jump on our discord you can also tweet if you tweet use the hashtag this week sf and good luck everybody good luck
0: okay so let's move on to upcoming space flight events we just got three events in just two launches so not nearly as many as the past couple weeks really so uh a nice little slowdown i guess
2: Now, well, first up you got the same old same old the falcon Nine. 9- uh from spacex block 5 that's going to be delivering a oh wait no it's delivering 1 webs to orbit this is 1 17 <laughs> oh yeah and so uh yeah uh, <laughs> this will be wednesday march 1st uh, at 1944 utc uh flying out of slick 40 at the cape slightly less old
1: also right before this show will have gone up uh presumably the uh starlink launch will have happened on on monday february 27th, 27th right before the show goes out um, and this is the first launch with their V2 mini uh, Starlink vehicles. Um, they are painted black and they look evil, uh, but you know, <laughs> that's, we, we want them painted black. So <laughs> that's good. All right. After that, we will have a news conference on NASA TV. So this is going to be SpaceX crew fives, uh, pre, uh pre-departure news conference. Uh, so like before Crew-5 comes home, this is going to be a, a news conference from orbit. Those four astronauts are Man, Cassida, Wakata, and Kikina. Uh, the news conference is going to be happening on Wednesday, March 1st. At 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time on NASA TV.
0: After that, on the 8th, uh, we have uh, the maiden launch of the Terran-1 from Relativity Space. So this is very exciting. So no payload that we know of it might have one but uh this is just a maiden launch so
1: yeah they they say they say no payload so it's gonna be like a mass simulator or a fun mass Mm -hmm. simulator i'm assuming Mm
0: -hmm. yeah at any rate it's uh the the name of the mission is good luck have fun i like that i don't know if that's a reference to something specific
1: well i'll tell you what if if i ever am in charge of naming a first launch it's gonna be have fun storming the castle
0: (laughs) the launch window for that on the 8th uh, would be from 1,800 UTC to 2,100 UTC. So a very large launch window, which I guess is to be expected. Uh, They're not really trying to get like anything into orbit, doesn't really matter. Um, uh, And that is launching from Cape Canaveral from launch complex 16. Uh, And yeah, the destination is low earth orbit, obviously. So um, (laughs) after that, don't know what happens, but uh, I just hope that they make it. I know that that's their primary goal too.
1: And And hopefully their mass simulator is something fun. We'll see. Yeah. All right. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events.
0: All right, which means it's time to do about the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkies and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live
2: on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank
0: you so much to Deathkin, Delta V, Mike, VT,
2: Colin, Chris, a.k.a. Steigarfield The Greek, and Chubby for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction
1: burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit the slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources.
0: For more information on this episode, such as show and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter
2: and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcasts on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com.
0: All right, so that's it and we will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.